Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. Shout out to Dr. Melissa Peterson and the Human Longevity Institute. Thank you, Melissa, for inviting me to teach in your nurse certification program. Links to the program will be in the show notes. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area who has integrated different somatic practices into his work. To learn more about his work, you can visit his website at www.cosperscafidi.com. Today's guest is Dr. Diana Hill. She's a modern psychologist, mom, yoga teacher, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal, Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitments Therapy. She sees herself as your psychological flexibility guide, offering practical, science-backed, and integrative strategies to help you skillfully adapt to life's challenges. Diana completed her undergraduate work at UC Santa Barbara, majoring in biopsychology, followed by a PhD in clinical psychology at CU Boulder, where she does research, where she researched mindful and acceptance-based approaches for eating disorders. She completed her yoga teacher training with the El Dorado Mountain School of Yoga. How are you doing, Dr. Hill? Oh, I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be here with you. I definitely appreciate you being on the show, and I'm looking forward to talking all about your new book. But before we jump into your book, tell us a little bit about your path, becoming a psychologist and getting into yoga, and also specifically working in, within the ACT system. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so interesting because people often ask this question about what's your path as if it's sort of a straight line from California to New York or something like that. But um, it's, you know, much more like how a, a plane would fly. It's ups and downs and rights and lefts and um, curvy. And, you know, I, I became interested in psychology because of my own history and my own recovery from an eating disorder and actually uh, studied with Thich Nhat Hanh, went to Plum Village and became very interested in mindfulness approaches even before I went into psychology and clinical psychology. And what was interesting is that when I got there, I got into this research world it was a very different world than what I was expecting. And from my own experience of recovery, I was there to, to help individuals recover from eating disorders and research that. And I became so disembodied in my experience there that I ended up having, um, I dropped out, I withdrew and went to a yoga ashram. So that's the yoga part of it. But I circled back and I circled back with an intention to really find an integration of what these um, contemplative practice, contemplative wisdom has known for, for thousands of years around what helps people with the core processes that science is also um, uh, revealing around what helps people change. And that's what led me to some of my research. It led me to ACT, which is one way of looking at that, acceptance and commitment therapy. And now is very much part of my life and my practice as a podcaster, as a mom, as an author, and just as someone who's trying to navigate the challenges of being a human in this world. Nice. Uh, first of all, plug your uh, podcast. Oh, my podcast is called Your Life in Process. So hence the sort of process. And, and it's called process for two reasons. One is that I do see our lives as emerging, emergent humans, right? And, and they're shifting and, and changing. And how do we adapt and be in the process and not so focused all the time on the outcome as what we're you know, often taught to, to do? But also there is a good amount of science now behind core processes that underline human flourishing. Mm 
And so on the podcast, I explore some of those core processes that are linked to ACT and acceptance commitment therapy, things like acceptance and compassion and being present and mindful and taking committed action towards your values. Nice. I'll make sure to include a link in the show notes so people can definitely check out your podcast. A question before we go on to the journal and your, and your work, you talked about kind of getting disembodied when you're originally in grad school and then you went to the yoga ashram. Were you aware that you were disembodied at the time because of your previous meditation work with Thich Nhat Hanh and, and that community? Like how, do you, how do you know that you're disembodied is ultimately my question. Oh, yeah. Well, for me, my disembodiment shows up um, in, in my struggle. Mm. So, so, so my flavor of the day, it's not my flavor now, but, but back then it was, um, around my, my, um, compulsivity around my eating and my exercise and my rigidity. And, um, if you think about, you know, something like an eating disorder, it's, it's, it's the, quintessential disembodiment, but it's also when you have an eating disorder, you're doing exactly what society has told you to do to be a good person. (laughs) You know, you're following all the rules. And in a lot of ways, when we follow all of the rules of our society, we become disembodied. I was recently on a um, retreat with Jack Cornfield. And one of the things that, that he taught about is that basically we are, our society, the illness of our society is that we've forgotten the sacred. And, and so for me, how that showed up at that point in my life, and that may be different from your listeners, you know, it all shows up in different ways. But for me, that was through um, my addiction to exercise and, you know, the eating stuff that, that reemerged, even as I was in the field studying this stuff, it was showing up. And I also believe that as humans, we have an inner knowing about what it feels like, a remembering of what it feels like to be in our bodies, because we are born embodied. We are born just mainly embodied. You know, we just sort of function without so much of this frontal lobe and um, expectations and shoulds and rules. And so I think that a lot of uh, mindfulness training is about coming back home, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, coming back home to the present moment, coming back home to the body and being able to make friends with our full inner experience of whatever's showing up for us and using that as a guide in combination with our wise mind and our intellect and our rationality and all those sorts of things as well. And, and actually all that comes very clear in your book, which we'll get into in a second. So I appreciate your addition to the, you know, more of your background and such, you know, w- before we jump into the various, how your book is structured and, and the different weeks and what's to be expected by doing your journal on a daily basis, something very specific from the book that I'll just ask you about, because I think it was fascinating. It's the uh, primary emotion systems and you, and you acknowledge that there's three of them, the caring system, the drive system and the threat system. And I wouldn't mind two things, if you don't mind, just explaining what each one is. But what thing that struck me, and you've already brought up the kind of the sociocultural uh, concerns that we should have, a disembodied kind of the, how the, I guess, maybe modern industrial capitalism helps us disembody ourselves. We need to be more aware of that and all those kind of good things. My question at the more of the sociocultural side of things is what struck me is, each of the systems has a support mechanism in our culture. Well, let me say two, seemingly two of the three, the drive system and the threat system. You know, I'll have you go into it, but the caring system doesn't seem to have a lot of cultural support. But before you kind of answer more of the sociocultural side, would you just speak about the three and why they're so important? 
Yeah. So, so this um, three system model comes from the work of um, Paul Gilbert, who's the founder of the Compassionate Mind Foundation in the UK. And I've had the opportunity to interview Paul a couple of times and, and learn from him. And it's sort of a, I would say it's it's a loose understanding of of the neuroscience and and of our of our human body. You know, so it's sort of like any model. It's kind of like oversimplified. But but with these three systems, and we can think, and, you, and your listeners can kind of think about this as I as I talk about it, and they'll probably get a sense of it, right? So the first system is our threat system. And we know about our threat system and we've all been under threat with this whole pandemic thing for way too long, but our threat system can be activated even just by looking at our phones, right? First thing in the morning, you open up your phone and there's certain apps that you look at. And even just before you touch it, you can feel that threat. It's our fight, flight, freeze. And now even our understanding of like complete shutdown, right? Paralysis. So our threat system, what's interesting about it is that it's designed, it's designed to protect you and there's evolutionary benefits to our threat system. But what happens when we are in threat is that our attention narrows. It narrows to um, a difference between me versus you. We don't feel interconnected. We see things see things as more threatening. You know, there's research on if, if you don't get a good night's sleep, you're more likely to interpret your partner's facial expression as irritable towards you, <laughs> you know? So there's certain, you know, things that can make us more vulnerable to threat and we become more ego-based and, and more about survival. So we all know that that's pretty familiar to many of us. Um, and we can be, we can have hypersensitivity to our threat system based on our early experiences by experiences of oppression, um, you know, all sorts of things. Then we also have a drive system. And actually that system is something that I've gotten more interested in recently and this concept of striving and drive and capitalism and going and getting things, right? And the drive system is all about resources. It's about evolutionarily, you need to keep safe, but you also need to go find food. You know, you need to go out there and find a new place to be and land your, your, um, your tribe or whatever. And so our drive system has a lot to do with that sort of ego self, the drive, and it can be positive or negative, like, and, and very much the neurohormone that we see associated with that is dopamine, right? Dopamine is a craving neurohormone, not a, um, a satisfied one. And our, and our society is overstimulating our drive system as well. I would say more so than ever before, especially since we have technology to do that. But the third system that you mentioned that you were kind of interested in is this um, caring system, the caring and sharing. And the caring and sharing is, you know, digest and rest, whatever, tend and befriend. There's lots of different ways for it. But it's the feeling of contentment. It's your, it's, you know, when you're lying in, you know, in the sun with your dog on the porch and you're just like, okay, like things are okay. And you feel connected. Um, when our caring system is activated, we tend to be more pro-social. We tend to be more creative in our thinking. And we tend to be able to look at things in more systemic, you know, kind of collaborative ways because we feel safe. We have enough. Um, and therefore we can, I think in a lot of ways, act from a much more healthy brain state. So a lot of what, you know, sort of my work in is, is sort of like, how do we use our caring system to help our drive system out so that we do compassionate based drive? And how do we use our caring system also to help our threat system out so that our threat is activated when we need to feel threat, but it's not, we're not constantly in that red zone space all the time. 
Right. That, that's fantastic. I definitely appreciate you walking through each one of them. And at the sociocultural level, kind of my thinking to ask you your take on this is like, I'm thinking like the threat system culturally has a lot of support. Like anytime you turn on the news, threat, 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 you know, or if you listen to the government, threat, 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 threat. So culturally, it seems like there's a lot of push in the, or activation, I should say, of the threat system. And then there's a whole bunch of other factors too, but in the drive system, same thing, like caffeine first thing in the morning to so you can get your drive going so you can work for the rest of the day. You know, so it just seems like, you know, our, our, a lot of our cultural structures and forms support those too, but not so much for the caring system. And two things that come to my mind is, for instance, like um, vaginal births and breastfeeding, if possible. I know there's for instance, you know, medical limitations for some women. So not for everyone, but like even those two very simple things are not the norm in our society. And they, we know that they help the mother and the father and the mother and the baby bond and initiate the caring system longer term. And then you can also, you know, there's gotta be other whole bunch of other examples in the culture that are kind of against the caring system. So I just kind of like your take, if you wouldn't mind jumping on all three and kind of the cultural side of it. Yeah, you know, I think that we've forgotten. Um, I think it was Mother Teresa that said we've forgotten that we belong to each other, mm. and um, and belonging is that feeling of we're here in it in an inter- interconnected, interbeing way. Um, you know, you talk about you know vaginal births, and of course, like what shows up for me as a woman when when you say that is I had two C sections, and so. I went into that whole birthing experience of I'm going to have a natural birth and I had community and I did the three months of classes and I did all this preparation and I ended up, my, my son ended up having the, the coil wrapped around his neck and, you know, and I, I did like, I labored at home as long as I can't, went, could, and I went to the hospital and, and ended up having to have a C-section and the degree of shame that I went into after that, because I did it wrong. And so when we, when I, in, in California, in this, in the town that I live in, they don't let you have VBACs. So you can't have another, um, you can't have a vaginal birth. If you've had a C-section, the hospital won't let you. And, and so with my second child, um, when I went in, I knew this time that I was going to have a C-section and I picked out my, my playlist of chants <laughs> that I wanted to have. Oh, cool. I picked out the, the, the prayer flags that I wanted hung in the OR. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I picked out the, you know, and so when I entered into that experience, it was a complete opening and acceptance of what is and, and how am I going to bring compassion to this space too? So I think a lot of times what happens is we get into our sort of belief system of this is right, this is wrong, and we miss the the bigger picture. And that's something that our culture is very caught up in right now, I think in, in particular with threat and drive being so dominant, is that we don't make contact with, okay, well, wait a minute, how could we step out and have a more conciliatory view that embraces it all and actually looks at the core values that we want to have, whether we're having a C-section or not. I can bring in the things that, that I really care about into this moment in time. And that's where values come in because 
the, um, the idea of values is sort of what do you care about and how do you want to show up in your life in the present moment, even when the present moment isn't what you like or what you expected or what you wanted or, you know, all these different things. Like, like I don't like the pandemic or I don't like that I'm having a C-section. I don't, this isn't what I wanted, but how can I embody how I want to be even in the face of that? Great. Thank you. Very helpful. And I hope I was attempting to be clear at the end of my comment on breastfeeding and vaginal births that there are, I wasn't intending to judge anyone that there are medical, obviously medical necessities for some. I'm just, I just meant more broadly speaking, the cultural norm was my concern, any particular individual choice a lady makes. So I just want to be clear on that one. Oh no, Um, I didn't mean to like, I didn't, no, no, no. I I guess I want to say is that that's the, that's the flexibility part of it. Cause I think you're right. I think it is better for if a baby can be born vaginally and there's also, and I hope that science changes on some of this stuff where we actually, um, you know, can use you know, whatever we can look at different ways of, of, of doing things in that department and you're spot on. There's things that are missing in our culture that we need to reclaim again. And the way that we reclaim them may be different than, than we expect. We need to get a little more creative sometimes about it. Well, and you actually did a great segue into your book because you already started talking about values. So I just want to remind folks, we are talking to Dr. Diana Hill, the author of Act Daily Journal, Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. So let me ask you, it's broken down into various sections. One of them is values. Another, Another is compassion, care, and intentional use of time. A second is being present. A third is cognitive diffusion, then acceptance, perspective taking, you've addressed values, and then committed action. And obviously, we don't want you to go through each and every one of this. This is not a class. <laughs> and we want to tease people so they actually go buy your book. But if you want to mind just touching on each one briefly, and I'm very interested in how they are actually all connected in, in the way you guys think about them. Great. Well, first, I want to say that these are six core processes that are sort of like six sides of a Rubik's cube. So just sort of imagining that you're fiddling with a Rubik's cube when you, when you work on one, it's inevitably going to work on another, right? And they're, they're all kind of connected. So we, we, we separate things out so we can understand them, but then we also have to understand that they're connected and that they come from a t- an approach called acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, which was developed by Stephen Hayes, um, Kirk Strassel and Kelly Wilson in the eighties and has really had Uh, a surge of research behind it in the past decade or so. It's becoming very popular. And because it's very effective uh, for things like um, performance, for depression, for anxiety, but also for just being able to adapt and thrive in your daily life. So there's these six core processes that we know through research, but also reflect contemplative practice and contemplative wisdom that are key for really living a life that has vitality and being able to evolve over time. The ones that you highlighted, we all know being present, right? We, there's, that's been something that's been really relevant and um, I think has gotten into the, the general public pretty much with the, the mindfulness um, interventions. But some of the other ones may feel a little bit newer to folks. So something like cognitive diffusion is a way of relating to your thoughts differently than what a lot of us tend to do. So a lot of times when we feel stuck, um, when we feel that we're struggling, it's in part because we're believing what our mind is telling us 
So even as you and I have this conversation, your mind is saying all sorts of things about the conversation. My mind is saying all sorts of things about the conversation. And then the listener's minds are saying all sorts of things. We have an inner commentary that is going on all the time. And sometimes that inner commentary is helpful to us. A lot of time, especially when we're struggling, that inner commentary can be harsh and judgmental or distracting or like just giving bad advice, like sort of like a really bad motivational speaker. And we can develop the skill. And it's truly a skill that you can learn of being able to step back from your thoughts, diffuse from them. So sort of like two pieces of metal that are fused together, separate a little bit from your thoughts, and then you be the chooser of which thought is helpful for you. There's a lot of practices that I teach on that particular skill set. And it's just, again, one side of the six sides of Rubik's Cube. Nice. And I have to imagine just from your past experiences, both with Thich Nhat Hanh and his meditation community and as a yoga pra- practitioner, now teacher, that that one l- lands really well for you. I mean, like in terms of your own history, training and background. Absolutely. You know, the the Indian fable of of the many parts of an elephant, we're all sort of touching a different part, right? Um, yeah. I really do believe that um, when we zoom out and we look at some of these core processes, something like how do we relate to our thoughts, what psychological science is now showing us is very is, it, is the very similar to what Thich Nhat Hanh has been teaching for a long time, to what Buddhism has been teaching or yogic practices. So you start to see this as the word is consilience, this idea that sort of like many different ideas coming together to a common thread or a common theme. And so, yes, it, it resonates well. And I also get really excited when, when science says, hey, yeah, this is like, this is, this is how, you know, when we do these research studies, we actually see that when you try and suppress a thought. So if I were to tell you, don't think about you know, a white bear, if you try and not think about that thought or don't think about the bagel in the break room, you're more likely to have that thought pop into your head in the next hour than if you were just to allow that thought to flow on through. So we know from science that actually thought suppression and emotion suppression has a rebound effect, but we've been taught by, you know, self-help and all sorts of things for so long. Just don't think about it right? Just don't think about you're anxious right now. What happens when you try and not think about your anxious, that you're, that you're anxious, you get more anxious exactly. versus what if I were just to say, take me now, anxiety, bring it on. I'm willing to have you here. And I'm still going to stay engaged in this conversation with this person. Then the anxiety is no longer in control, but it's there along for the ride. And we get to choose how we act. You know, it, it strikes me that there are two of the six, which I do want you to talk about in a little bit greater detail, but are, and, and I point these two out because they seem to be lacking in our culture, mm-hmm. perspective taking and compassion and as well as self-care and intentional use of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if you want to mind touching upon those two, and if you want to even mind, com- you know, if you have any kind of uh, cultural, sociocultural commentary as well on those. Yeah. You know, perspective taking is a, is a big one um, right now. Right. Um, There's a, there's a saying in 
12 step programs of their, but for the grace of God, go I. Right. And I, we can take perspective on ourselves. That's one aspect of perspective taking when we're caught up in threat and we're caught up in drive, our perspective has narrowed, including our perspective on ourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're struggling, we often don't do a great job of zooming out and remembering, oh yeah, I remember like five years ago, 10 years ago, I went through something similar and it was really hard for me. And this is what I learned from it. And these were the ways in which I grew. And those are the strengths that I have. And I'm going to get through this too. And this is an opportunity, you know, growth mindset. We forget to do that, right? We're just so in it. We also forget that we have a very wise, wise self inside of us that, that if we were to listen to, it might, might help us out a bit. So we, we, we don't do a great job of perspective taking on ourselves. And part of that is because our, you know, our egos are being so, you know, fed and we're also, you know, kind of told that there's sort of one way or right way, but we also need to do a better job at perspective taking on others and understanding um, the commonality of our human experience. So in that same way, I said, like, we need to like look at the divergent, the differences first, but we also then, after we look at the differences, we need to find linkage that when, for example, if I'm in an argument with my, with my spouse, I'm in a fight with my spouse, my tendency when I'm in a fight with my spouse is to go into, I'm right. And he's wrong and try and prove my point. Right. And the more that I try and prove my point, the more that he's going to prove his point back to me. Right. And if I were to practice perspective taking in that moment, I may be able to just just like, like kind of lean back a little bit and say, whoa, like I'm caught. I'm caught. And he's caught too. And what, how is he caught? Like, how is his leg in a trap? Like, how does he feel threatened? What's going on with his day? What made him more vulnerable to fight with me? Did he have a stressful day at work? Had he, did he not get lunch? Cause he forgot, you know, forgot to bring it. Did, you know, something happen right before he walked in the door. Can I have compassion for that? And can I have compassion for the fact that we're both stuck in our vicious cycles of trying to prove ourselves right? Um, my mom has, who's been married to my dad for almost 50 years. I asked her what is the most, like, what's the key? What's the secret to her marriage? And, and she said, we have an agreement that if we're in a fight, whoever drops it first is the winner. Oh, I love that. And the, the, the one agreement, the other part of the agreement is, and you can't say I won. <laughs> you do that. You can't pick it up again. But so, yeah, so perspective taking starts on our own home. It starts with ourselves and then it moves into our own homes. And then if I can do that with my spouse, then maybe I could also do that with somebody that has a different political view than I do. And then maybe I could do that with our planet, you know, like perspective take on, on the beings of our planet you know, like how they're being impacted by my actions. So in that way, we can be, start to see that we're all interconnected, really. Nice. I love that. That's great. Um, And speaking of interconnectedness, can you talk a little bit more about compassion and then also a little bit about self-care? Because I think that's really important, generally speaking, but especially now in our time. Yeah. So compassion and self-care are related, but different. And maybe I'll start with self-care. Self-care is um, tending to our basic human needs. And again, going back to this idea of um, embodiment, 
It's like, what do I really, if you were, if our listeners were to sort of check in right now and really ask yourself, like, what is it that I really need right now? What does my body need? What does my soul need? What does my intellectual self need? What's my social self need? What is my self that desires mastery need? Right. So what is it that I, what is it that I, what I need? Right. And, and responding to that is through self-care, caring for yourself as you would care for someone that you love or a child. Um, Compassion is a little bit different because compassion is about how we respond to ourselves when we are suffering and how we respond to others when they are suffering. So Gilbert, again, talks about compassion having a flow, flows in three ways. It flows in the way of self-compassion, which there's been a lot of research now. Kristen Neff is one of the leaders on that and um, talked to her a couple of times. I actually talked to her. She came on a summit that I did called From Striving to Thriving. And she did all these embodied practices of self-compassion and, and in particular, you know, like the fierceness of self-compassion. Sometimes it's really taking care of yourself in a, in, a, in a defensive way. Like I need to defend and carve out this time for myself to care for myself or set a boundary. She put a fist on her heart and then a soft hand over that fist. That's like compassion, that. right? And, and so we can have compassion for ourselves. How do we respond to ourselves when we are suffering? And are we meeting it with kindness? Are we meeting it with common humanity? Are we meeting it with mindfulness, which is some of the research on that. But we can also have compassion for other. It can flow out so we can breathe, you know, we can have it for ourselves and then we can also send it out. And what's interesting about the sending out compassion um, research is, you know, caring for someone else who is struggling or suffering is that there's a tremendous amount of benefits to the individual in doing that. One of the best things you can do when you are struggling is go help someone. <laughs> it helps you get you out of yourself, right? We know that like, you know, volunteer work, you know, seeing that you're not alone in your suffering. And then the third flow of compassion is our ability to receive compassion from others. So when you're struggling, how well are you able to receive the care and help from another? And for each of us, the different parts of this flow may feel more comfortable or more feel like they're, we're better at it. Like for me as a therapist, obviously giving compassion to others is like my skill set. I've got like major biceps in that department. But as a mother and as a woman, my ability to receive compassion and help from others is actually, and I think partly socialized, not great. When I'm, when I'm having a hard time, I tend to just say, I can do it on my own, right? And, and then I've had to learn over time self-compassion, like look at my mistakes and my, my messiness with a little bit more of a kinder eye. So that's one way to look at compassion. I love the flow concept and I love it even just an embodied way of breathing it in and sending it out, that it goes both ways. And when we do that, again, going back to interconnectedness, it benefits the whole. So I mentioned when I, when I named your book that part of your book title is it's a journal. Can you explain how these different six uh, areas that we just covered, compassion, self-care, being, pres being present, cognitive diffusion, acceptance, perspective taking, values, and committed action show up in the journal? And when people buy, what should they expect in terms of daily practices or weekly practices or habits that work? Sure. Well, I have to mention, mention my co-author, um, Debbie Sorensen, who is a friend first and podcast co-host second and author with me third, nice. that we've been talking about these concepts from psychology and contemplative wisdom for a long time. And we've been practicing them in our own lives. But what 
we really wanted to do was break it down and make it like relatable. I mean, even as I'm talking right now, I, I, I tend to go out into like, you know, big picture conceptual world. Right. But actually, what does that look like today? Like as we, as we end this interview, how am I going to act on those specific processes in my life today? And so what we did with this journal is that it's, it's kind of more than a journal. It's not just a bunch of blank pages. That's not what you're going to get. What you're going to get is an overview of the, the process, what it is. And then you're going to get seven days on each process, little tiny micro skills to apply to your daily life and to reflect on how it goes for you. And we wanted it to be experiential. We wanted it to be practical and we wanted it to be doable and like take very little time because we are both busy working moms with not enough time, but wanting to do some of this work. And that's ultimately how I believe that the work is done. We were talking about Katie Bowman earlier, right? Yeah. We, do, we can go to the gym for an hour, three times a week, or you can do yoga once a week for an hour. But you will probably benefit your body more if you're moving throughout your day every day and you're getting up and down off the floor. And so that's what this journal is about, is really bringing these processes into your daily life in a practical, applied way so that they benefit you. Nice. So, and I want to encourage everyone to obviously go out and buy Act Daily Journal. How can they find the journal and how can they learn more about your work? My website has a ton of information and different places you can learn from me and on it. So if you go to my website and click on the book section, um, you'll get the journal, but you'll also get a workshop from me on compassion, which is pretty cool. Right. So that's a good place to go at drdianahill.com. I am primarily on Instagram. That's sort of the platform of choice. If you got to choose one, just choose one. <laughs> um, and then I'm teaching on Insight Timer. I teach at Insight LA. Um, on a quarterly basis, and then through my podcast, which is weekly, where I interview um, leaders in the field, contemplative practice, scientists, people in ACT, and then I also offer um, a daily practice with every single podcast that I do. So that's a great place to find me as well at Your Life in Process. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, Dr. Hill, definitely appreciate your time. Love the journal. Let me encourage you everyone to go out and get it, and also check out your other work too. I'm excited to hear and check out your compassion training. Uh, Dr. Hill, thank you for joining me in the Emergent Human Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Bye-bye.